My name's Clover, and we need to talk about eco-anxiety. Some of you may be wondering what eco-anxiety even is, while others may be struggling with it right now. This podcast is for both of you. For those curious listeners who want to understand the impacts of climate change on our mental health, this podcast is your crash course. Each week on the show, we'll be exploring a different face of the climate crisis, from the food we eat, to our relationship with media, our addiction to fossil fuels, and everything in between. I'll be speaking to leading experts and global companies about challenges and solutions. You'll also hear from young people around the world who feel eco-anxious, and hear from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline Hickman, about how to navigate some of these feelings. And for those of you who feel eco-anxious right now, I'm here to tell you that you are not alone. And far from being a sign of weakness, your eco-anxiety is totally normal. In fact, it's a sign of your empathy, proof that you are awake to the issues. I believe that talking about our eco-anxiety is the first step to turning it into agency, community, and vision. So let's talk about eco-anxiety. On the previous episode, we unpacked the intersection of climate and social justice, featuring environmental educator Isaias Hernandez, aka Queer Brown Vegan on Instagram, as well as Rob Cameron of Nestle. We heard from our resident psychotherapist, Caroline, about why climate change is not a technological crisis, but one of selfishness, greed, and apathy, and how to turn climate guilt into a force for change, instead of tipping into climate doomism. If you haven't already, be sure to check it out. Today's episode is about water, As I speak to you, we are in the peak of a heat wave in the UK, and all I can think about is taking a long, cold shower to escape the still muggy air. But then I remember the amount of water I use every single day. I remember how much water went into the pair of jeans I'm wearing. 7,600 liters. Or the iced coffee I'm drinking. 130 liters. That's before you even count the almond milk. Add another 1,500 liters. When I turn on the tap, water feels abundant. And in the UK, compared to a growing number of places in the world, it still is. Yet it's estimated that the UK will face extreme water shortages in the next few decades. Right now, about two out of three people globally are already experiencing water scarcity. Major cities like Cape Town, Sao Paulo, Beijing, and Jakarta are quickly running out of drinking water. I know I'm not helping when I buy water-intensive foods, products, or even plug in the AC, powered by energy from a refinery that might be polluting someone else's direct water supply. Frontline communities may well have lost their right to clean drinking water so that a pipeline can be built to generate the energy that keeps the AC running when I'm too hot. That is messed up. Water is life. It is comfort. Yet viewed through the prism of the climate crisis, it is a mounting source of eco-anxiety. Because climate change is only exacerbating water 
extremes. If you don't have enough water, you have droughts. If you have too much water, you have floods. If you have enough water, but it's polluted by the fossil fuel food or fashion industries, then you have a health crisis on your hands. I want to find out how we can change our relationship to water to stop it from becoming a source of eco-anxiety. So. I reached out to Oya and Franz of P&G, both of whom are tackling water use within the company. As always, you'll hear from young people around the world whose eco-anxiety is fueled by growing water scarcity. And you'll hear from Caroline, our resident psychotherapist on navigating these difficult feelings. But first, I wanted to hear from a frontline voice, someone who has experienced water scarcity and pollution firsthand. I invited Bize Gray onto the show a land and water rights defender from Amdenung First Nation in Ontario. An indigenous two-spirit, Bize is also one of seven young people taking the Ford government to court for weakening Ontario's 2030 climate target. Bize is the real deal. Bize, over to you. Ani bojo bizika indishna kas makon dodam amjonong donjaba anishnabe ndao onaida ndao and ape ndao anishmana dokendao so i always introduced myself in anishnabe mon first i was taught that the ancestors are always here and so when i speak the language it brings them into the space and so i was taught by my elder to always do it in the language first and then translate it for everyone else and so what i said was hi hello my name is bizi gray i'm from amjonong i'm Bear Clan, I'm Anishinaabe, Oneida, and I'm Lenape, and I'm Two Spirit, so I go by they, them. I'm 26 years old, and I do a lot of environmental justice. I'd love to hear from your perspective how you've seen major companies and major interests driving water pollution. I come from Amjong First Nation, where Canada's Chemical Valley is located. And so there's a lot of refineries, like just over 60 refinery facilities in the 25 kilometer radius of my community. And so that's a lot to put <laughs> in like near a small, small community. And the highest polluting, 60% of them are within the five kilometer radius. And so my community has faced pollution in the air, in the water, in the soil, and within our own bodies. It's like my homelands are right next to the Great Lakes. They're right where Lake Huron meets the St. Clair River. Every part of the Great Lakes is important and we shouldn't be risking with pollution, but yet we do. A lot of the Great Lakes are under threats for many different things and my community is just one of those stories. I had a huge toll on speaking up for the water, speaking up for the land, and feeling hurt by getting a notification every single week that a spill's happening, that this is happening in my community and it's impacting the water, the land, and all these different things. I grew up behind Telford Creek, which is a creek that runs in my backyard, and they have signs up around it that says, do not touch can cause serious illness, and that's because of the pollution. And in the 80s and 70s and earlier on, they used to do illegal dumpings in our creek, and so there's a lot of sediment pollution, accessible, clean water that was not a factor within my community. We had tap water, which is like, we still drink it. Some people don't. It's kind of a hit or miss. It's more of today that it's the sediment that's dangerous to us. It's no longer the water that comes from somewhere else that flows down. It's all the sediment that's holding the historical pollution that's been happening. And these refineries have been here for over a hundred years and the damage that they have done is not changeable 
within like generations. Like it's going to take a really long time to clean up what they did and they did harm to our water system. So Telford Creek just has a sign up um, around our community that again, just do not touch, but the animals can't read those signs. And so they drink from the water and they face health impacts like cancer, like which impacts our traditional hunting. Like like a deer is a lot more meat than trying to make money to buy meat from the supermarket and can feed a lot more people. When you go to hunt a deer and then you're processing it and you find a tumor, then you can't eat that animal anymore. (laughs) Like it's not safe for you to eat. And so deer, is not feasible right now. We used to live off the fish and deer, but the fish and the deer and the things that we are trying to collect and forage from our own communities are impacted by Chemical Valley. In southern Ontario, Lake Erie that faces it a lot where they're having more algae come up than they're used to. They keep wanting to bury nuclear waste near the Great Lakes. It's really impacted a really huge, unique water system of the world of the Great Lakes that they have harmed. It's completely changed. I couldn't speak of what the land looks like for me right now compared to two to three to four to five generations back of what the land looked like. There used to be different species of animals living down there. Like we used to have bear, we used to have moose, but now it's been so long since we've ever had any of those types of animals that they're just not even in our database of like, we have those animals here anymore. How concerned are you that future generations will not have access to clean drinking water? And maybe if you could also share some of the direct actions that you've taken. I'm fighting right now and I'm an advocate. But even if tomorrow, if all the refineries shut down, I'm not going to see any kind of change in my generation. Even if they all shut down, we still have the problem of leaking pipelines, of the thousands of chemicals that were released before that. And we're not even sure like how long our ecosystems would take to come back to being the way they were. It would take quite a bit, like, and it wouldn't be within my generation that I would see clean water and clean air within Amstrong. I still have issues today where we're in COVID lockdown, like all all of Ontario's in lockdown right now and Chemical Valley's in their startup season and they've spilled like seven times in the last week and some of them were undocumented and everyone's stuck at home in Amstrong. So that's been really hard. They can't leave their homes because of the lockdown and they're just getting hit by like Chemical Valley. There was one day where people were getting sore throats and feeling sick because of breathing the air in Amstrong and they can't leave their homes. That part is so hard and that it's like I have feelings and hardships for the people who are facing climate change on our own home territory that have no say on what's happening. And that's people of color and that's Indigenous people. We don't actually get proper consultation whatsoever. When we looked at what happened last year in 2020 where I worked with the wet steward and people, I went to them and I told them what it's like growing up next to Piper 
pipelines as an Indigenous person and the disconnect of culture, the disconnect of safety and the threat to water and land that they cause. And then to see in 2020, Trudeau calling for the pipeline company to call for the RCMP to go in and remove the wetsuit and people from the land to put through a pipeline that they were never properly consulted on. They were met with assault rifles to get them to move out of the way or to get them off the land or arrest them for just saying no to a pipeline. Those are the people and the things that I have hardship and worry and all the love for. It's hard enough. Indigenous people face missing and murdered. And then also just people of color, what's happening right now with police brutality and Black people, like they also face environmental racism. And so just the intersectionalities of what people of color are facing and that they're also having the hardest hit of climate change. Because you would never see these refineries in Trudeau or Ford's backyards. They're in my backyard for a reason and Canada put them there for a reason. What do you feel needs to change, particularly through the Western context, about our relationship to ourselves, our communities, and of course our relationship to nature in order to avoid climate collapse? Canada needs to give back power to the traditional territories that they're governing right now. So Amjanong would have control and say of what's happening in Chemical Valley, whereas right now we have no control and no say. And it's really disappointing that Canada is still following Queen. Like they keep calling a lot of places and things like Crown Land when she's never even stepped foot on that land. <laughs> like it doesn't actually belong to her and the water systems don't actually belong to anyone. Like, it's just water. (laughs) Like, you can't actually have an ownership of that. Indigenous people viewed the land as not something that we own. It's a weird Western thing for people to be like, we're going to own the water. And for Indigenous people, we'll never recognize that. The water flows. Even if you say you own it, you're not going to own the same water that was there before. It's going to flow into like Huron or it's going to go to the St. Lawrence and the other lakes. There's no way you can say that you actually own that waterway. Very European centric. An elder came up to us and said, we should teach like a water gathering where we share our water teachings and our responsibilities to water. And so it was open for people to join in with us. And so we did a water walk, water ceremony. We gave out water teachings and really gave people the perspective of water is sacred and we have to respect it. We have to uphold it. And for everyone else to understand that and to also claim responsibility as well, that we need to protect water and that it can't just be Indigenous people that are holding the responsibility for protecting water. It needs to be everyone because it's not just Amjanong's problem that Chemical Valley is polluting and is harming our climate and our environment. It's harming Canada's, it's harming US's, and eventually it's going to harm the world if we lose the Great Lakes. It was so moving talking to Bize and also heartbreaking to hear the stories of frontline communities unable to escape the exploitation of the fossil fuel industry. I could also hear the sadness in Bize's voice to think that they won't see the efforts of their activism in their lifetime because the decisions being made by industry will be felt for so many generations. I wanted to learn if there were others experiencing this eco-anxiety in response to a mounting water crisis. So I put another call out to young people around the world. 
Here's what they had to say. My name is Andrew. I am from New York and I'm 22 years old. The neighborhood I live in, you kind of see trees disappearing all the time, fields, natural ecosystems, wetlands, all kind of getting wiped out in place of buildings and industrial infrastructure. I definitely relate to the term eco-anxiety. I would describe it as that feeling of helplessness because the problems and the challenges we face with climate change are so vast and so complex and wicked and so intertwined with different systems systems like economic systems, food systems, political systems, and of course natural systems. So it's a really difficult problem to attack. Climate change and ecological breakdown have definitely impacted the relationship that I have and how I think about water scarcity, looking at the different hot spots in the world, what the implications are for how temperatures are going to impact water scarcity and which regions are going to be very difficult to grow crops in based on the amount of water that they're going to have access to, it's going to likely lead to a large displacement of a lot of people and people who live in indigenous areas are going to have to move. And so this is something that really scares me because I'm just not sure that our current political system and the way that they are framed is ready to handle mass amounts of migration. I'm Devika Narayanan. I'm a 20 year old from India and I'm currently pursuing my undergraduate degree in Manufacturing Science and Engineering from IIT Kharagpur. So I live in the southern part of India, in a beautiful coastal state called Kerala. I've lived here pretty much all my life and for as long as I can remember, every year around the months of June to September, we would witness very heavy rains. Many parts of the state would then flood and this meant that a lot of people would lose their homes in the process and be forcibly displaced. For these people, the actual impacts and implications they face extend far beyond simply losing the roof over your head. One of these major consequences of forcible displacement is losing access to clean and safe water and sanitation facilities. Not having access to a basic necessity like water leads to a sense of hopelessness and a feeling of not having autonomy over your own living conditions. I'm Tommaso, I'm from Pistoia, Italy, and I'm 17 years old. I can't say that climate change has upset my life, but surely after seeing tragic scenes of environment disaster, even if from behind the screen, I have become aware that something urgently needs to be done. I'm Caterina Nicolai, I'm from Pistoia in Italy. I'm 17 and I study chemistry and biology. Water pollution is one of the most serious ecological threats that we face today. Water is essential for life and due to its richness, it's also called blue gold. 97% of the Earth's surface is covered with it, but only 0.8% of all water is available for life, as it is fresh water in a liquid state. In addition, climate change causes the melting of glaciers and therefore the decrease of fresh water present on the planet. On this issue, I would like to quote Vandana Shiva. Water is a gift of nature, it's essential for life, it isn't replaceable, it is a common good. We 
We've just heard from young people speaking to the reality faced by so many around the world who don't have access to clean drinking water or sanitation, or who look to the future of a water-scarce planet and fear what the far-reaching fallout of this will be within our own lifetimes. I want to figure out how to navigate some of these difficult feelings, so I've reached out to my friend Caroline Hickman to unpack what we've just heard. If we think about what water represents, it's something that none of us can live without. And we are something like 90% water. We are made up of water. You know, we spend the first nine months of our lives in our mother's womb swimming in water. So we are creatures of water. People always talk about water with love and with fear. So there's a lot of fear of drowning because it's a very powerful force. So it can both nurture us and nourish us and keep us alive and it can destroy so if we have too little we die and if we have too much we die so it's one of these crucial things symbolically that we need to live in balance with i read this really interesting article about re-greening deserts and there's a whole area in china where they have reforested a desert we create deserts by cutting down trees. As soon as you cut down trees, the soil is degraded, it loses its nutrition, water stops, rain clouds stop, and it turns into a desert. It's very simple. And what they've done is they've regreened it, they've reforested it. It took 10 years. There are now clouds, and so there's now natural rainfall, and there's now natural rivers flowing through it. And they looked at how to regreen a whole section of the Sinai Desert in Egypt. And they were talking about how if they were able to do that, it would create rain clouds, which would then create rainfall over other parts of the country. Water is something that humans have tried to control from very early on, probably before fire, because of how important it is. For me, the symbolism of water is really the way into understanding this, that water will not respect us. We need to learn to respect water. It doesn't respect boundaries. It flows across boundaries. Water doesn't stop at the passport checkpoint. Rivers flow across countries, don't they? And this really triggers something really complex in the human ego, because we want to have control over all of these natural resources. It's the one thing we cannot control in the same way as water. We can't make it rain or stop it raining. But actually, we are highly dependent on this natural cycle. Will we wake up to the importance of working with these natural cycles, or will we really mess it up, not just for ourselves, but for everybody else? I think there might be a solution in terms of protecting water differently. Rather than putting a price on it, I think recognizing its spiritual, soulful, cultural importance and protecting it. So there's rivers that are now being given rights, legal rights, for example. So I think rivers and seas and oceans and streams and creeks should be given legal rights for protection. And then it's the duty of the people living around that space to protect that water and to honour it. And anyone who pollutes it has to be held accountable. The ancient Greeks had a polytheistic psychological society in frame where there were multiple gods and goddesses. And there were gods and goddesses of the water. So I think we really should be asking Neptune. I think we should be asking the gods of the water. I think we should be asking the nymphs and the dryads. So this is an archetypal psychology view that says let's take the human ego, let's take the control, let's take the possession out of this substance. Because the gods and goddesses will punish us if we try and control and own that water. So water, I think, holds so much for us if we could let ourselves be held by it and move into right relationship with it. Water is life. 
something to be respected, cherished, feared even. I thought Caroline's analysis was fascinating. How our relationship to water epitomizes how we've come to commodify nature and how we've tried to exert control over it. I feel like the only thing left to do now is speak to a company. I reached out to France and Oya of P&G, who have both worked on Fairy, the dishwashing brand that has been used as a guinea pig for promoting water conservation and reduced emissions in the home. Here's the DL from Fairy. Fairy dishwashing liquid has been designed so that consumers can use less water and wash in cold water. By reducing the temperature of the water by 20 degrees, consumers can reduce up to 50% of the CO2 otherwise created through heating. Their dishwasher capsules have also been designed to be powerful enough that consumers can skip pre-rinse and wash in eco-cycle, saving both energy and water. Ferry are also promoting circular packaging. Their bottles contain up to 100% recycled plastic, and in the past two years, they've increased the recycled plastic in their transparent bottles in Europe from 15 to 50%. Let's hear how these numbers stack up with France and Oya. I'm Oya Ongor. I'm leading Europe Home Care for Procter & Gamble. I am Frank Lesnik, and I lead a research and development for Procter & Gamble on sustainable innovation. How do you feel that water scarcity will define our lives in the future? Water scarcity is a reality today, and it's going to worsen with time. 14 out of 20 world's largest cities already suffer scarcity. 1 billion of people on that planet do not have access to safe drinking water. 3.6 billion are living in water scarcity today. And it's going to ramp up, especially as cities will grow. It's expected that about 60% of the world's population is going to be hosted in cities by 2030, up 70% by 2050. And unfortunately, climate change will create more droughts conditions. And it's got a name. It's called Day Zero. Day where there's zero water off the tap. And we're starting to see more and more cities falling into Day Zeros. Mexico went into Day Zero. Chennai went into Day Zero. Texas, a few months ago, went to Day Zero. Istanbul was 30 days away from Day Zero last January. The west coast of the U.S. are actually actually now heading to probably one of the most severe droughts in the decade. And we're going to have more and more of those cities up 2030. So it's going to be defining lives of people. And, uh, and we need to react to that. We need to anticipate and, and, and solve for that. Have you seen this water scarcity and water pollution actually drive human rights issues and drive conflict? Well, first off, water is life. No water, no life. So access to water is access to life. And actually what we saw in Chennai, when Chennai went into day zero, it's fights and fatalities over fighting on getting the water ration for people. The moment that that becomes endangered, life altogether becomes endangered and people will actually get into troubles to get the ration of water that they deserve and need. What is the responsibility of the company versus the individual? First off, as a company, we have responsibility on, on water usage. So we need to be as water efficient as possible in the way we run our operations, which we are. The second is how we formulate our products and how do we actually cut off water in the way we propose and offer solutions to consumers. Last but not least is how do we empower the people of the world, the 8 billion people of the planet, the 5 billion we directly serve as a PNG company with solutions that can make them use less water in their homes. And I think this is really as important as the rest. That's one of my motto and my mission as sustainable innovation leader in PNG. And 50 Liter Home is one of the projects that I'm driving. If I look at the world's urban usage right now, you're between 150 to 250 to even up to 500 liters per day per person. So the ambition is how are we going to make 50 liter per day per person feel like 500 liters. So there's really a feel of abundance. It's irresistible, but it runs at much lower levels. It means a few innovations, especially 
in the water reuse area. What we're talking here is how we're going to make water circular in the homes of consumers. Can you imagine that today we flush our toilets with fresh drinking water? What if I could actually use my shower water to flush toilets or my laundry water? How we can start creating circular loops within these homes so that we stop flushing toilets with safe cleaning drinking water? So that's innovation. I'd like to turn to you, Oya. What are the impacts on both water and climate change of a big brand like Ferry? Ferry is really a household iconic brand and that gives Ferry a very big responsibility and what we are doing is taking each of the steps from production till the ingredients, packaging, in use, end of life and then the disposal of the packaging and we are measuring the climate impact that we have at every step. And what we are seeing is that there is a very big portion, 90% of it is really in use. So when consumers are using the product, that is where the biggest environmental impact is happening. It's the water consumption as the dishes are washed with water and how much water you really require. And this is where we are really looking at ways of reducing the impact. So for example, on auto dishwashing, the critical element that we need need to influence is the pre-rinsing. 75% of consumers in Europe pre-rinse the dishes before they wash the dishes. And that means that during that pre-rinsing process, they are consuming 21 billion liters of water per year before the process of actually washing the dishes. So we are now communicating to the consumers because we have products that perform extremely well, you don't need to do this pre-washing phase. You can skip the sink and you can put your dishes directly into the machine. What are some of the challenges and barriers in being so huge to pushing a really rapid sustainability agenda? The way we are looking at it is really with consumer at the heart. This is a very important topic and it's top of mind for many consumers and it's only accelerating. And therefore, for us to be long-term, continue to be the preferred brand of all these millions of consumers that we are serving, we have to live up to their expectations. It's not a choice. It's not a strategy that you can decide, I'm going to do it, I'm not going to do it. It has become, and I'm happy it has become, a matter of survival for all the brands. It's not just uh, Procter & Gamble, but for all the brands, they need to make their part. What is challenging is the science. There is conflicting points of view on which proposition or which formula is really the most sustainable one. I feel it. It's a bit like the Tesla car. No, you know, you think you're doing something good. It's an electrical car, ah, but no, the battery actually, you know, could be negative. So, you know, there is this still every step that you make, there is a drawback or a negative side to that. And that is not yet very clear everywhere. It's not standardized. Has this rise of eco-anxiety been something that you have both been aware of? The eco-anxiety is totally a reality. I mean, I'm scared to death, <laughs> but I'm more optimistic than scared. I think the whole point is how to transform eco-anxiety into a productive force of innovation. And to be honest, with company like Procter & Gamble touching 5 billion of lives around the world, the power and impact you can have is massive. 
we need to change the paradigms of the world. I really believe that this world has been constructing on a couple of paradigms. Oil has been a big one. And, and if you change that paradigm, you can totally, completely change the world. We can create a different world. For me, that's really my engine and my force. But that's coming from eco-anxiety, of course. I have a daughter that is nine years old and you feel it, right? You're worried about, okay, what's going to happen next? And it's really a big concern. Uh, it's not only the water, it's also clean air. It's all the global warming that we are now looking at. So it is absolutely scary. But as Franz also said, if you don't turn your fear into action, and if we are not the ones that are leading the way, then who is going to do it for us? No one. And this is really what should keep us going. And I think there is a lot of room for partnership with all the brains and all the energy that is now out there. We will uh, crack a different future, a new world. The one thing we cannot do is give up. Everybody has to do their part. If you are a part of a big corporation, you have a role to play. Ferry has a role to play. I work for Ferry. I need to move in the right direction, whether it's in our personal lives or in our education or in our professional life. We all need to make sure that we are progressing. I never feel more connected to nature as when I'm in the water. Whether it's swimming above a coral reef, paddling in a lake, or simply listening to the water drumming on my head as I take a shower. Growing up surfing, I also learned to develop a healthy respect for the power of water, the elation of riding a wave, followed by the fear of losing your breath as you're sucked under the surface. Bizet, Caroline, and France all spoke to the fact that water is life, yet our relationship has fallen so out of balance that we've reached a tipping point. As we heard from Young Voices, climate change brings to mind images of drought and flooding, wildfires and cyclones, all determined by the global water cycle. And now with 7.8 billion humans on the planet, how we use that water. That includes big corporations like P&G. While it's a step in the right direction for P&G to look beyond how they make products to what a consumer does with them, this does not go far enough. True ownership would also mean taking responsibility for how they've historically contributed to water exploitation and pollution, for example through plastic waste, as one of the world's top plastic polluters. France said that we need to change the paradigm to create a different world, and this I agree with wholeheartedly. I believe it starts with a two-part solution. First, humans must be supported to develop a personal appreciation of nature so that we know how and why to care for it. To Caroline's point, this means recognizing water's spiritual, soulful, and cultural importance and repairing the mental rift, the illusion of separateness between humans and the rest of nature. Nature is a human right. We are nature. Second, nature must be legally protected as inherently valuable so that humans are impelled to carry out that care. To take a quote from David R. Boyd's book, The Rights of Nature, a legal revolution that could save the world. Humans are but one species among millions, as biologically dependent as any other on the ecosystems that produce water, air, food, and a stable climate. We are part of nature, not independent, but interdependent. We urgently need to establish and enforce a new set of rights and responsibilities. The rights belong to non-human animals, other species, and ecosystems. The responsibilities rest with humans. Now, 
You're not responsible for solving the climate crisis because that's outside of your control. But what you are responsible for is the thing inside your control. Indeed, the only thing that has ever been inside your control, your mindset. So let's get to work on fighting for the rights of nature and ourselves. Next week on the show, we'll be discussing women and girls. We have awesome conversations lined up. You'll hear from Nagiz Deber, eco-feminist and creator of Chicks for Climate. You'll also hear from Fideus El-Hansali, Global Communications and Sustainability Director at Dove. As always, you'll hear from Young Voices, our resident psychotherapist, and me, your host, Clover Hogan. See you there. How did today's episode make you feel? Let us know by heading over to Force of Nature's Instagram at forceofnature.xyz and dropping us a comment or DM. As a reminder, if you are struggling with your mental health in the face of the climate crisis, or you're feeling particularly overwhelmed by your eco-anxiety, you can find a whole host of resources to support you at forceofnature.xyz forward slash podcast. The Force of Nature podcast is brought to you by Force of Nature and the awesome production team at One Fine Play.